There will be spoilers ahead. Lots of spoilers, so be careful, won't you? Well, children, set a spell and hearken to old Preacher Max and slightly less old Preacher Mike as we find ourselves walking that last dark street in the Lord's series, Walk the Dark Street, just as it is written in Philodendrons 713. Brothers and sisters, what is sin? Does it haunt our every step? Yes, it does. Is it the easy path that leads our size 12s astray? 12. Yes, it is. Is it the dark, pony-trod path of our <laughs> devil? Yes, it is. Is it a small bandicoot named Steve and his wife a bandicoot also called Steve? Why, yes, it could be, for bandicoots are particularly sinful creatures, as shown in Fauntleroy 22197. Uh. But the point is, brothers and sisters, that sin creeps in like a pony in the night, like a knight of the hunter, if you will, <laughs> dropping steaming clods of degradation from its most sinful back parts. Do, do we know how to fight sin? Do we know where the truth lies? Do I have any idea what I'm saying? at this point or have the voices of the bandicoots filled my ears and heart to overflowing and now all I hunger for are small insects, bulbs and fungi. Mmm, bulbs and fungi. (laughs) Well, sure, but this is also our final episode in our series dealing with film noir and, well, this is one noir of a film. I'm your host, Max Rock of Ages. Take my wife, Levine. And or yonder, bringing in some sheaves, or possibly lawn furniture, is the wrong Reverend Mike Luce. Blessings on your pantaloons, Mike. Rock of Ages, take my wife. <laughs> what? That's how it goes. Have you ever read a book? Any book? <laughs> when you say read... <laughs> wow. Okay. Sure. <laughs> but before we get on to hunting in the night... Last time I gave you a our, week off. <laughs> our poll question. Question. Last week we asked you, what is your favorite comic, ha-ha, make-you-laugh, giggle-giggle film? Huh. Nick Hoffman says, ooh, thick question. Thick? Is, is that good? I don't know. Oh, okay. Two Ks? Uh, no, no, oh. not two Cs either. Hmm. That's how I've seen it. Yeah, no, maybe hmm. it just means it's mm, sweet and meaty, <laughs> like a butt steak. <laughs> It's been a while since I saw a really worthy comedy, but Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Oh, sure. Uh-huh. Also, Life of Brian. I never heard of Also, Life of Brian. That's the sequel. But, oh, okay. Mm. Young Frankenstein, mm. Blazing Saddles, Animal House, and Blues Brothers. It's always hard for me to pick between them as favorites, but I spent some time ruminating on the subject as to best a while back and I determined that Young Frankenstein was the tightest overall comedy I'd ever seen. Interesting. Huh. Thank, thank you, Nick. Angelo Patsalas, concise as always, says, The In-Laws. Oh. Serpentine! Serpentine! I've never seen it. Uh, Peter Falk and Alan Arkin, I think. Oh. Yeah. Uh, Harry McCracken agrees with that and also says, The Freshman, written by, also written by Andrew Bergman, who I guess did uh, The In-Laws, is on my top ten. Freshman's a very odd movie. Isn't it like, what's his name, uh, Ferris Bueller and Marlon um, Yeah, it's Matthew Marlon Broderick Brando. and Marlon friggin' Brando <laughs> playing 
I'm not exactly sure. Sort of playing Don Corleone, but oh, kind of not. Okay. Well, yeah, it. we may have to watch it at some point. It, it's interesting. We might. Valerie, check out these Q footsteps. Coons, possibly related to and has been in the same room with one of us recently. I wonder who. Yes, I have to list two because stuff and reasons. Well, no. those are her two. Stuff and reasons. Stuff Great comedy. Stuff, stuff, stuff and reasons. Stuff and reasons. Go like, <laughs> like a... Stuff and reasons. <laughs> <laughs> nice save. Uh, airplane. Okay, sure. And yeah. here's a shock. What's up, Doc? Ah, I am. I don't care how many times I see either one or that I basically know the scripts by heart. They're always hilarious. Mm. Yes, they are. Pope Derek hilarious. Steele. Agent of Norcross. No, so he's that, a photographer. <laughs> I want to be named Derek Steele. That's you like the most macho name there is. Meet the Parents gets me every time. Oh. Ben Stiller plays the oh. role so beautifully. The scenarios are just so perfect. I've heard that's hilarious. It's just one of those everything goes wrong movies that I can never deal with. And Ben Stiller. I can deal with him. I can't. AJ, maybe Sheems, thank you. So many come to mind, but I think in terms of what I would just consider all-time classics for myself, one, Dumb and Dumber. Mm-hmm. Oh. See, see our whole episode on Dumb and Dumber. Yep. And two, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. Those aren't oh, pillows. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and three, The Jerk. Ah, Mike's autobiography. <laughs> thank you. I'll be here all week. It wasn't um, butt steak. <laughs> and from Dave. Dave. Comedies are not so easy in my household due to the two and a half languages used. Eurotrip is probably the one we've seen the most times in the last decade. Really? Oh, wow. Okay. Huh. National Lampoon's oh. Eurotrip? Is that what it is? Um, actually, I'm not sure. I think it's just Eurotrip. I don't know if National Lampoon's involved. Is it involved. that Chevy Chase? No, it's not. That's one's oh. called European Vacation. Eurotrip oh. is one. Oh, I forget who's in I it. I know nothing about it. I, I saw parts of it. Some of it's really funny. I've never seen the whole thing start to finish. Huh. Also, Love Actually. Mm-hmm. Okay, Is that's that a movie Alan I kind of want to... Kind of, yeah, among many, many others. But uh. yes, that's kind of a movie I want to slap. But Oh, dear. Uh, on the Japanese, I was very happy with Gintama 1 and 2. Oh, uh. I thought 2 was too derivative. And uh. more recently with Kamikaze Girls. I have heard about that. I've never seen it. That's supposed to be really good. Don't know. Both of which I think would be funny to people who don't speak Japanese, and they are both available with subtitles. Oh. For German, really? <laughs> okay, I know that's not fair, but... Uh, no, it's not, and yet... I would, me- I would mention Erkan und Stefan gegen der Macht des Finsternis. Yeah, he, Finsternis. Yeah, he mentioned that last week. Yeah, which is, as it is pretty much the only German language comedy I've seen, and probably the only one there is. I think you said uh, it was com- very Bill and Ted-ish. Huh. That's Bill and Ted in German. <laughs> Ach, we're pa- pa- Party on, dude. Party yeah. on, dude, und, it's very good, yeah. Be excellent to one another, <laughs> for it is the appropriate thing to do. Comedy can, comedy can be difficult because it involves clever wordplay or else timing in the delivery of dialogue. As a result, it's hard to find things we both like. Zany comedy often translates the easiest, but that doesn't work for e- us either in Japanese or in English. Mm. I like both Raising Arizona and The Big Lebowski. Can't say they're favorites because I saw them one time each, but they have stuck with me. See our entire episodes on Raising Arizona and The Big Lebowski. And they do abide. That's apparently. Dr. Dr. Professor Rebecca Pelkey says, I'm not usually drawn to comedy for comedy's sake. 
Huh, I'm not sure what that means. I'm usually more excited by films that present as comedy but can also gut-punch me with horror or sadness or just earnestness. Well, I guess that's what she means. Oh, okay. Taika Waititi is great Waititi. at this. <laughs> <laughs> Some you Someday you'll realize that gets really old. Jojo nope. Rabbit is probably his best example. Okay, yeah. As well as Boy and its sequel, Man, I guess, which I adore, but not many people have seen. I don't think I've seen that. Me neither. Joss Whedon, though now a problematic figure, oh, yes. was also good at it. Buffy the Vampire Slayer, obviously, and Cabin in the Woods. Horror, but with a lot of dark comedy. Oh, boy, yeah. Also, and unrelated, Barbie was effing hilarious. Hmm. Regan McStravick says, Apparently, big fan of Norman Krasner. <laughs> Once again, narrowing down to even a list of many would be damned hard. Eulogy had me laughing probably more than most, and Seven Psychopaths. Also, Mr. Wright. I do have strong feelings about Sam Rockwell. Wow. Three movies I've never seen, two of which I've never heard of. Hmm. Well, that's why we ask other people, so we get yeah. new views on stuff. Adam Mark, in an uncharacteristically short post, hmm. that's Airplane, 1980. It's so cleverly, tightly and cleverly written. It commands your attention and captivates you with endless jokes, gags, puns, and slapsticks for a full 90 minutes. Hey, brief, but very to the point. Hmm. Hmm. See our episode on Airplane. Uh, oh. Yes. <laughs> we already did it, huh? <laughs> I, I think we did. Uh, Harry McCracken, again, writes in either The Wrong Box or Movie Movie. Boy, we got some obscure ones here, which were co-written by Larry Gelbart or Albert Brooks's Real Life. The Wrong Box, funny book. I heard and didn't hear great things about the movie. Hmm. So believe it or not, this Robert, Robert Louis Stevenson. Oh, yeah. That, oh, Jamie, he is funny. He is hilarious. <laughs> Jamie Kleinert says, Hot Fuzz, mm, mm. Snatch, mm. The Birdcage. Mm. Mm. I wonder if they mean the, the French or the... Uh, well, I guess I, if you meant the I, French, you'd say Ocasio Fall, yeah. yeah. Producers, both versions. Oh, huh. Princess Bride, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Snatch and Hot Fuzz are frequently on the screen at our place when we need a good laugh, and producers, Matthew Broderick and Nathan Lane version, not far behind that. Hmm. That's our Hitler! <laughs> okay. Roland Hardy just says, Young Frankenstein. Uh, hmm? Yeah, don't have to say much more than that. Nope. A Agatha Gasparoni says, Super Troopers and Christmas Vacation. Hmm. I'm sure there are others, but those are the first ones that come to mind. Stephen Strickland says, Austin Powers was outrageous. Walk Hard, the Dewey Cox story. Okay. Sure. Uh, Talladega. No, that I never saw it. I've seen scenes from it. It looks funny as hell. I know it's John C. Riley, who you're not fond of. Eh. But mm, Talladega Nights, Airplane. I think Happy Gilmore and Waterboy are great. Hmm. Richard Tatum, inventor of the Tatums. Uh, <sighs> tough, <laughs> tough one. Monkey business. Ah, Marx Brothers. I'd say maybe Airplane, the producers, the original, and Love and Death. Hmm. hmm. Good choices. Ooh. And, of and, of course, our master of Canadian comedy, sorry. Vince snow, says, snow, snow, I don't usually snow. laugh out loud at a movie, at least not after the first time I watch it. There are some movies that just stay funny, though. Young Frankenstein and High Anxiety never get old. And there are parts of original version of Bedazzled that just get me laughing every time I see them. There are some hilarious parts to that movie. Overall, I don't think it works. Ah. 
They can't all be Terry Gilliam's laugh riot film Tideland. Oh. Okay, I said that just to freak out Max after I <laughs> held back in saying that last week that Klaus Kinski might be my fave foreign actor in case Max called the hospital for a mental health check on me, which I am going to do. Excuse me. Hello, Canada? <laughs> <laughs> You've got socialized medicine? Send socialized medicine over. Get a sled. Get those huskies going. And do not eat the yellow snow. Oh, <laughs> But those were remarkably varied and interesting answers. But for ones that won't be, Mike, what, what is your? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, couldn't help it. I tried. No, try I harder. So no, <laughs> be Avis. Wasn't that, <laughs> wasn't that one of the Die Hard movies? Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> sure, Die Hard Two. Try harder. Um, oh, I thought you meant be Avis, and I'm like, what? <laughs> that, no, even that was B. Arthur. B, B, that was B. Avis and Butthead. Okay. Um, I do. Fired. Didn't I fire you last week? <laughs> so many times. So what? what is, what's your go-to hilarious, always makes you laugh movie? What's up, Doc? I mean, come on. I like figured, anybody yep. didn't know this was coming. Yeah. It has a lot of nostalgia. It's one of the first films I ever saw in the theater. Yeah. If eh, It wouldn't have been the first, but it was dang close, and I was seven. <laughs> so, And I loved that film. I saw it more than once in the theater. Why? I don't know. Something just grabbed me about it, and I still it still makes me laugh. I love the uh, timing. I love the tightness of the script. Uh, I love the performances. You know, I'm it's not, funny. It, I think it is. It is. Would it's it hold funny. up? Would it hold up to a to an audience of like twenty or maybe early thirty something today? Probably not. That being said, it's my favorite comedy. It's the one I yeah. go to and will always enjoy, and it's always got a little place in my heart, a little expensive place on the top of a hill. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Max? Uh, you're, I mean, comedy is kind of your thing. Like It is. It's really hard for me to pick a single one. There isn't really one favorite. I mean, I, I got it down to three. Okay. It was Monty Python and the Holy Grail, yeah. Blazing Saddles, yeah. and probably Duck Soup. I oh. think of Marx Brothers. Yeah. I am actually uh, surprised that Young Frankenstein is not amongst them. Nah, I, I mean, it could be in there. It's If it isn't the top in, in the top, it's skimming right below it. Yeah, I mean, if you didn't have a Mel Brooks, I'd have been dang surprised. Never mind yeah. a Monty Python. And Holy yeah. Grail, I that, that there's something works. about that team. And I'm sure if we knew British humor better, we would find we would know their influences better. But dear gods, the amount that they've influenced from that show oh, God, and those yeah. early films, dear, just amazing. Just it's, amazing. It's stunning. It really is. Yeah. But that was a really fun question, and of course, yeah, we thank you all for your awesome answers. They will uh, actually be more useful than usual, but we'll talk about that part later. But, what could he mean? But we have another one, which yeah. you to think about. Uh, somewhat influenced, perhaps, by this week's movie. Maybe. What, who, or what is the Where? scariest movie character you've ever encountered? Just Ooh. the one that makes you go, I never want to meet that. Yeah. And at the end of the show, we will I'm gonna go with Tommy the- Wiseau. <laughs> Ooh, that's good, actually. Although I got to admit, I kind of would want to meet him. Just, mm, just only to if there's at I least had. two exits that he doesn't have access to. <laughs> well, I would like to meet him if, say, he his ankle was hand was handcuffed to a, a table leg or something. I knew I could ankle get cuffed? away. Mm. Something like that. Cuffed. But at the end of the show, we will tell you how you may respond to this question in case you don't already know. Mm. But now, stuff about the movie. Yep. Facts. Budget? This was about $200,000 over budget, and it came to somewhere between six hundred dollars and $700,000. What did they spend this is 19, it on? This is 1955 money. Well, because they had some pretty serious acting muscle in this. 
Mm. Uh, the gross, it's hard to find, but it, some of the estimate is somewhere around 30000 This Uh-oh. was a flop. Uh-oh. This was a disaster. Uh-oh. Nobody knew what they were getting. They didn't know how to market it. We'll, we'll get to that. Uh, one of the writers of this is James Friggin' Ag, Okay. The Pulitzer Prize winner. Really? This guy also wrote The African Queen. Didn't win it for this, did he? No, Oops. he did not. <laughs> so disappointed was he by the by the poor reception of the film on its initial release, both critically and commercially, that Charles Lawton, the director, vowed never to direct a film again, and he never did. Good for him. Now, that's one take on it, is okay. that uh, other people, Lawton himself said he just preferred directing in the theater. Said there, you could constantly change and amend the production, adding lines, changing lighting and sets. But film, once it's done, you can't change it. Yeah, that's like that's not so true anymore. Mm, unfortunately, Mr. Lucas, naughty, naughty, Mr. Lucas. <laughs> Later on in life, Robert Mitchum, who was usually kind of indifferent to stuff like this, said that Charles Lawton was his favorite director, huh? and indicated this was his favorite movie of the ones he'd acted in. Huh. The Dutch-born American serial killer Harry Powers, a.k.a. Herman Drenth, was the inspiration for The Preacher. Oh. Yeah. (laughs) After their initial meeting, Lillian Gish, who we will talk about later, Mm. asked Charles Lawton why he wanted her for the part, and he replied, When I first went to the movies, they sat in their seats straight and leaned forward. Now they slump down with their heads back and eat candy and popcorn. I want them to sit up straight again. Charles Lawton, obsessed with posture. <laughs> I guess he is the uh, the emperor of posture. Yay. Robert Mitchum really wanted the part of the preacher. When he auditioned, a moment that particularly impressed Charles Lawton was when Lawton described the character, and I know you're going to have to bleep this, as a diabolical sh**. Mitchum promptly answered, present. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Charles Lawton reportedly worked well with a little boy playing John, mm. uh, Billy Chapin, mm. uh, but didn't get along with a girl playing Pearl and kept shouting at her, which is kind of unfair because she was about eight months old or something. Yeah, and As also Lawton, it's a di- weird dichotomy because, of course, it's opposite of how it worked in the film. As Lawton had the camera continue to roll after scenes were finished, the camera often caught her reacting to him. And some of these outtakes were used in the final editing to reaction shots of the preacher. So when she's looking afraid of Robert Mitchum, she's actually afraid of the director. Oh. Robert Mitchum tried explaining to Billy Chapin that he needed to better understand his character and his relationship to the preacher. Chapin, who had kind of a reputation already for being kind of a brat, Uh-oh. replied, That's probably why I just won the New York Critics Circle Prize. Oh! Charles Lawton bellowed, Get that child away from me! <laughs> and from then on, Mitchum patiently directed the boy in their scenes together. Wow. Well, of course, Shall- uh, she wouldn't be around for much longer. Oops. Yeah. Shelley Winter said that this was the most thoughtful and reserved por- performance she ever gave. Hmm. Well, I mean, it's no Poseidon adventure, but... (laughs) Francois Truffaut, famous for being French, referred to the film (laughs) as an experimental film that truly experiments. Remember, this is 1955. Yeah. Sure. Lawton really liked Mitchum, but, um... (laughs) Well, as a quote from uh, Paul Gregory, the producer, said, Lawton had a keen thing for Mitchum, and Mitchum said all this stuff about how he loved Charles 
but he was on drugs, drunk, and what have you, and there were times when Charles couldn't get him in front of the camera. He put us through a lot of hell on that. The picture went $200,000 over budget. Oh, dear. Gregory said that Mitchum was a lot uncomfortably like the character he was playing. He was a charmer, an evil son of a bitch with a lot of charm. Mitchum! Mitch sort of, Mitch sort of scared me, to tell you the truth. Yeah, we'll get to that. <laughs> Mitchum's performance was seen as a change of pace for the actor. He usually played, you know, tough guy, detective, police, heavies. And he's always tended to be very blunt, but he was notoriously unwilling or unable to accept praise for his work. And his response was, I haven't changed anything but my underwear. That's so apparently he had preaching underwear. Uh-huh. <laughs> to, this, this is kind of sad. To promote the movie, Robert Mitchum and Shelley Winters did a guest shot on the Ed Sullivan Show in the spring of 1955. Winters, in her autobiography, writes about how the stress of live television caused Mitchum to drink and caused her to become, in her words, shrill and dumb. <laughs> the two got into costume, with Mitchum displaying the words love and hate on his hands, like in the movie, and performed their, performed their scenes very badly. Oh, dear. Winters said she stuttered and lapsed into Brooklynese. Well, Mitchum spoke so quietly, their microphones had to be cranked up so loud... Millions of viewers across the U.S. could hear our stomachs rumble. <laughs> yeah. Great. During the scene, according to Winters, Mitchum held up the wrong hands to illustrate the points about <laughs> love and hate, and the audience cracked up. <laughs> and uh, just so you know, this film was inducted into the National Film Registry in 1992 for being, quote, culturally, his historically, or aesthetically significant. Was it? There's a lot of other stuff in this about here, but uh, mm. I think that'll do. So yeah, let's go right into the plot. Yeah. Well, we're in the midst of the Great Depression in the Ohio River Valley County of West Virginia, I plumb reckon. <laughs> and we got us the Harper family. Daddy Ben, who's a bank robber. Little John, who has to be the man of the house once his father gets hanged for being a pretty bad bank robber. Little Pearl and their mama, Willa, who has a pretty lousy taste in men. <laughs> Dad goes off to prison, but not before hiding his ill-gotten gains, $10,000, in Pearl's doll, because that's a really good idea. In prison, he meets Harry Powell, a part-time preacher and full-time serial killer, who reckons he is going to smarm his way into Willa's heart and find the stolen money, then... Um, Send Willa upstate to a nice farm where she can run and play. And no, he plans to kill her, as he has at least a dozen women already. The town of dumbass West Virginia immediately <laughs> takes to Preacher Paul, basically bludgeoning Willa into marrying him, as she's gots to have her a man, by cracky. Pearl is young and easily taken in by Paul, but John, he knows that fella ain't right. After gaslighting the hell out of Willa, Powell finally can't hold back any longer and kills her. The children escape his clutches, somehow, and head down river in their father's old skiff, but Powell is hot on their trail. Eventually they find themselves in the care of Miss Rachel Cooper, a no-nonsense but kind-hearted lady who takes them in and adds them to her brood of abandoned children whose parents are gone or unable to care for them. Like you do. Powell finds this new, unusual family and tries to smarm his way in... But Miss Cooper sees through him in a Cincinnati minute and chases him off with a shotgun. When Powell comes back under cover of night, apparently thing, thinking that singing loudly is a good way to sneak up on people, <laughs> he breaks in, desperate to get the children and the doll, and winds up with a face full of birdshot. 
Powell is arrested, the children have a new home, and the day is saved, despite the fact the children have to deal with a world where pretty much every single adult other than Miss Cooper fails or betrays them. Yay? <laughs> the film. Well, that's the noir part. Yeah. <laughs> hey, kids, the world's out to get you. Lesson yeah. learned. <laughs> my, well, uh, this- my first note, I know we usually start off with the actors, was... Hello, I'm Peter Graves, and now I'm dead on a and uh, I had, uh, hello, I'm Peter Graves, and I'm your father, and a bank robber. Uh, well, we'll start with Peter Graves. i got to say, yeah. I think this is the worst performance I've ever seen out of Peter Graves. He's he not there does, very long, but... No, he's on screen for like two, three minutes tops, and he he doesn't just phone it in, he like telegraphs it in. But he's not alone. Uh, we'll come back to mm-hmm. that. There's one scene, though, where he's in jail, and he's laying on his bunk, and there's an odd camera angle, and we have Robert Mitchum sort of leaned over him, and Spider all I could think preacher. of was, get a room already! That's <laughs> nice like when you know, Mitchum's head appears up, upside down yeah. from the bunk above. It honestly looks like they're about to start something that you wouldn't expect <laughs> in this film. Mm-hmm. But yeah, Peter Graves, you know, and he's... In general, Peter Graves is fine. I don't think he's a great he's actor. He's competent. He's generally not a bad actor. He's one of the few consistent things in most of those old science fiction films. And he, you know, and then eventually Mission Impossible and finally in Biography on A&E. But here he's just like goes to, from adequate to kind of terrible and then sort of back. It's just, I don't know. I just didn't find him very good. But uh, He did not do a good job, no. Shelley Winters was utterly unrecognizable to me. Yeah, but she did. I thought she was remarkable in this. I thought she did a great job. I wouldn't say that she's remarkable, but I would say that not because of her. I would say that because the writing in this film we'll come back to. But I don't blame her. I just I did not understand her motivation in anything. But I don't understand oh. anybody's motivation except, well, we'll come back to him because he's the biggie. Uh, Lillian Gish, who is a very famous um, oh, yeah, silent she's film royalty. star. She, is a, she was in a couple of... Two of D.W. Griffith's most famous films, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Intolerance and uh, <clears throat> Birth of a Nation. <clears throat> Sorry. <clears throat> yeah. <clears throat> yeah. And I think she does a great job in this. You I know think, who she is almost immediately. Well, I think that she is one of the only two really decent performances, performances in this film, and we'll come back to the other one. We have other characters with names like Icy Spoon... <laughs> <laughs> yes, which it sounds like a name. I admit, it sounds like a name that you would give on a crank call. Yeah. Hi, this. Can I speak to Icy Spoon? <laughs> yeah, I, she's just annoying. I guess yeah, she's but, very realistic of that type of person. Oh, absolutely. I I found her completely believable, and her you know henpecked husband Walt. Yeah, I actually they work very well together. Mm. It's just not pleasing. <laughs> Oh, be pleasing. Yeah. Uh, uh, there's Uncle Bertie, played by James Gleason. He's fine. I don't understand his relation, if any. He's just some guy who lives on the side of the river, I guess. Mm. And then later is utterly unuseful. Um, That's the thing. He's another lovable adult who turns out to be to basically betray the children by being useless. But yeah, I wasn't. Everybody else seems that. to be. Do, they actually do something badly that impacts the children. He just drinks one night after having found the corpse of uh, the kid's mom, and mm. which was very poorly hidden because as soon as the sun hits the <laughs> the river, it's like, oh, yeah, there she is. <laughs> like, how yeah. did he not drive past 
Uncle Bertie's uh, boat in the car to bury the corpse. We don't the know car. how far down the river Bertie was in his boat. I know, but how did he get it? Because it's literally just like, it looks like it's not very far. They don't go very far from where Bertie lives because let's mm. face it, after a couple of cups of uh, coffee, I don't know that Uncle Bertie can find his way back to his boat. Yeah. Um, but whatever. Uh, then there's the kids. Sally Jane Bruce is too young to really judge. She's, you know, she does what she's supposed to do, but no, she's not very good. Billy Chapin? Uh, yeah. I'm going to go with horrible. <laughs> I thought he did a decent job. He had an incredibly difficult part to play, and uh, I thought he pulled it off. All he does is mug at the camera. And again, here's he the thing. I can't tell if it's him, right? Because yeah. he there's, there's lots of times the motivation on him and his performance literally seem to be based on nothing at all. Because there's points where he knows that Harry Powell, Robert Mitchum, is a bad guy. And yet when he shows up at the orphanage or whatever Mrs. Cooper is calling it, his first reaction is not to scream and run away. It's yeah, to walk placidly to the also. porch. And it's, yeah, like, it's like, oh, yeah. you're here. Okay. Yeah, he just, I don't know. I didn't, maybe he's okay. But there's a couple of times when he's supposed to be looking, I don't know, like upwards for help or he's trying to look something. And to me, he just doesn't pull it off. His movements mm. seem very stiff, but he's not alone so i don't know but yeah not big on kids anyway well, but want, want to get to the big one yeah well also i would like to say a shout out to bob the hangman oh yes yes he actually it's bart if you look at his okay. I, bart if you look at his uh imdb page he's got almost 400 films good for him Yep, he's a bit player in everything. If I were ever going to be an actor, that that or character actor yep. is exactly what I'd want. It's just like constantly hero, working. Rance Howard, yep. Yep, don't have a fan club, don't get yep. recognized. That's totally fine. And get to Rance used to get recognized on the street. I don't know how, but people are hey, Rance. Also, a real quick one for Gloria Castillo, who played Ruby. I only mention her because apparently she later will star in Invasion of the Saucer Men. So there you oh, go. Oh, no, really? <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> I think she wow. uh, points and screens. Yes, I believe that's her part. Ah, yeah, you know. But fair enough. Mitchum. Let's get to the yeah. Mitchum. Mitchum. I, I I don't know. Have we ever seen him in a bad role? I gotta say, in a Off lot of, of badness head, no. in this film. Oops. The only reason this film to me had any tension at all is because of Robert Mitchum. I I would say the cinematography uh, had something to do with that also. We'll come back but to that. He is friggin' terrifying. <laughs> He just seems like he's about ready to kill somebody all the time. Yeah. Every second, you don't know if he's actually going to... What kind of a preacher walks around with a friggin' switchblade as, as a sword of the Lord? Well, has his own religion, he, you know, because Ben Harper asks him, you know, what, what religion do you preach, preacher? He says, it's, a, it's my own that I the, that God the Lord has given me. We came up with between the two of us. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And also oh boy, that, when his new wife on their their wedding <laughs> night finds the switchblade in his coat pocket, what uh, does she do? She oh, smiles, man. shakes her head and says, oh, man. And look, look, huh? I have to go That's, with, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Uh Nice girl, Willa Utbe Utne Ute Itbre. Well, and I don't know where she's coming from, because in one hand, she's like, no, I don't need a man. I don't need a man. And admittedly, Icy Spoon will not shut up about yeah, what she... people should do and what blah, 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 blah. And then suddenly she's taken in by by Harry Powell, whom mm. he takes people in with his religiousness and his... Um, 
he's very charming in his own way. His very thick la layer of smarm that most people don't see through. I just think that it works best if you don't look at him. Because <laughs> if you look <laughs> at Roger, Robert Mitchum, there's just something not right with that boy, if you know what I'm talking about. Well, he has sort of resting, I'm going to murder you face. <laughs> he does. But, again, this is supposed to be noir. We'll get to that question later, too. The only reason there's any fear or tension is because you honestly believe that he will kill anyone and anything in this movie. I mean, this is 1955. The idea of somebody threatening children mm. is unusual to say the least. And I don't know Portraying, about hmm? I, saying, I don't know about you. Even though it's 55, I was willing to believe he might do something. I, yeah, I was I was like, yeah, I absolutely believe he would kill either of them or both of them. I mean, first he and slices the throat of the Haze Code, and then he kills the kids. Yeah. <laughs> Woof. Yeah. So, cast, I'm going to say that since most of the performances were not up to par, and some of them are coming from people that I generally have seen do better jobs, I'm not going to blame the cast. All right, I don't entire, I don't really agree. I think uh, not just Mitchum. I think Lillian Gish and Shelley Winters both do really good jobs. I don't. I don't understand the motivation of Willa Harper at all. She makes no sense to me because she suddenly goes from a very strong, determined woman to oh, I'm a sinner I, and I will do everything he says. And I don't. I didn't see her as particularly strong or determined. She's a woman who's been beaten down by poverty. She's trying. She has watched her husband be dragged away to the police and then hanged. Her children are bullied musically in the streets. Because <laughs> remember, everyone's got that Your Daddy Was Hung taunting song. Remember yes. that? Hing, hing, hang, hung. And <laughs> I have to say, I do have to say those kids obviously put a lot of rehearsal time into that song because <laughs> uh, the the coordination and the uh, melodic quality is very good. I know, but I kept but waiting she's for... she's dealing with that. She's been beaten down. Yeah, but she's still determined to raise the kids on her own. She's telling Icy Spoon... Oh, I can't believe that's a character name. She's telling Icy Spoon, I don't need a man. I don't want a man. I'm good. And she seems much more capable at that point. And then suddenly he shows up and she not only falls for him in an afternoon, but she then is like, oh, I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. And I'm like, what, huh? What, what's yeah, happened here? I don't know. Yeah, that happens a little quickly. Although I do find that was one of the creepier parts is when she's standing up in the revival meeting and blaming herself for the fact that her husband became a bank robber. Yeah, which, because <sighs> hmm, she asked for all those things. We didn't see her ask for all those things. Yeah, yeah. I just, I, I didn't buy it. And again, I'm not blaming her. I think, I mean, it's Shelley Winters. We know she does better than this. So I just, I don't think that the writing and the direction was there. But we'll get to that because otherwise I'm giving stuff away. Um, we do start off with a nice cheery song and Lillian Gish to let us really set that noir mood. <laughs> Yes, which she's apparently singing to the disembodied heads of children. I guess. Um, but that's okay, because the kids who are playing hide-and-seek, they, uh, they're they frightened because they find a dummy in the basement. <laughs> Did it yeah, look like somebody had just dropped a house on her to you? <laughs> no, it looked like Resusa Annie had fallen <laughs> off the shelf. It was strangely unconvincing. Like, it could literally have just been an actor with their feet. We only see their legs. Yeah, but part of it also was the way the kids reacted, which was like, huh, <laughs> how about that? Oh, my hide spice. <laughs> oh, my hide spice already got someone in it. Huh, oh, I don't see that every day. Oh, um, <laughs> mom. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then we see 
some stuff with Robert Mitchum, and I. So he, we see him, we get, suddenly the movie needs some burlesque, I guess. Oh, that's right. He's watching. He's in a strip club for for reasons. A, bur, a burly Q show. A burly Q show, and we get to see that I did not know. I'm guessing that this is where the love hate hand tattoos came from. I would never have guessed it was this movie, but yep, it was this. This was the first one. Wow! And you see that everywhere. Yeah. Hell, do the right thing. Radio Rahim has. Uh, uh, those I don't know what you call them. Those the things you wear on four fingers that cover the uh, top of top of the finger knuckles. Mm-hmm. Uh, a grill of some kind. They, you know, one says love, one says hate, and of course Rocky Horror. Eddie, yeah. Eddie, and Rocky Horror. This, it Eddie! happens in a. Bu- <laughs> I always liked on the Simpsons sideshow Bob when he gets out of prison because the Simpsons only have four have uh, a thumb and three fingers. On one hand, he has tattooed love L U V, and on the other, he has. H A with a line over the A T, the linguistic term for a long A for hate. So love and hat. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, because he only has three fingers. Yes. Ah, uh, okay. <laughs> yeah. And so yeah. he, we see him go to a burlesque show, and he's looking at the evil of women because, of course, it's the woman's fault. Blah 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 blah. Oh yeah. And he's so upset that. Um, there's this really weird uh, symbol of him setting off his switchblade in his pocket, which punching is punching through his clothes, which is very symbolic of a man's switchblade yeah. punching through its pocket. <laughs> so I, yeah, like, I didn't understand that. Yeah, you get the feeling he was going to go Pee Wee Herman on us, but uh, oh dear, he he does, he gets arrested then for stealing a car, not for murdering people. I haven't caught him for that yet. Yeah, somehow that's but, how he ends up in prison with the. That speech he does, the monologue, when he's in the car, mm-hmm. talking about the things, there are things you do hate, Lord. Mm-hmm. That was so creepy. Perfume and powder and hair that curls. Yeah. Silks and satin. Yeah, this is, again, a, a, a woman hater. This is a massive guy who's either uh, terrified of or enraged by women. And I think he's afraid of them because the, that's, and this is jumping ahead, but that's his problem with Miss Ritz Cooper is she stands up to him. She's not scared of him and he doesn't know how to deal with her. Well, and there's this bit in the beginning where she sort of presages all this by talking about how you can't have um, an apple tree. A bad apple tree will never give a good apple and you can always tell and blah, blah, blah. And he shows up and it's actually a, a really great scene in that. Everybody else is taken in by this guy and his, you know, velvet tongue or iron tongue and a velvet fist or however that works. <laughs> oh, velvet. I, I don't know. Yeah. But she's sitting there listening to him. She's nodding and she's nodding. She goes, mm, nope, don't buy a word you're saying. You <laughs> yeah. don't like yeah. you for some reason. And Yep, she knows. That's nice. And I actually love the fact that He's doing going after the kids, and she. What does she do? Does she run for the police? Does she run into town? Does she scream? No, she runs for her shotgun, and she pokes him and says, "You need to leave now." And you see, he look. He's genuinely afraid. Yeah. For the first time, you don't see him scared any by anybody else except her. No, and I will give Robert Mitchum this: a man who himself seems to be the embodiment of that which causes us fear does pull off acting scared. I did yeah. buy it. But yeah, um, we have this, this, I guess, sort of mystery in the beginning because um, Papa Graves shows up long enough to basically tell the kids, whatever you do, don't tell anybody where I hid the money. Oh dear, where am I going to hide it? Oh, the cops are here right now. Um, um, and we're supposed to guess where the money is. We, we don't know. I don't know. Have, mm. you, have you seen this before? 
I have. Oh, did and when you even first the saw first it, time, I, you yes, knew where it I was. knew it was in the doll. Yeah. Of course, it was in the doll. Yeah, and that the sad thing is, is that I think it would have been better if they had left that till much later in the film. Yeah. Um, it, yeah, I think that's a, that reveal comes too early. Yeah, because well, we'll come back to this. It felt a lot to me like a Twilight Zone episode. Huh. Because there's actually, Why? there's just something about it, like because of that twist, like the money is hidden somewhere and the kids know about it and something. There actually was an episode that was vaguely like this, where there was this guy who is a bank robber. He makes it back mm-hmm. to his, his old house where his mom is, but he dies from bullet wounds and she hides the money. And she figures what's going to happen is, turns out he was killed by his other gang members. Oh. She hides the money, never spends it. The idea being that someday somebody is going to come and try and buy the house from her and they're going to pay this ridiculous price she set on it only because they know the money must be there. And sure oh. enough, one day if somebody shows up, he's been in jail all this time. And oh. what she's done is she's actually poisoned him while she's talking, telling him the story of her son and they're drinking tea and he doesn't oh. know it. But it feels like you don't know where the money is. And it turns out, I take it back. She didn't know where the money was. The son hid it. She never oh. asked him, and she didn't want to know. It wasn't important to her. So okay. that's why I kind of felt sort of Twilight Zone-ish to me. I could see that. But uh, I think this is more fleshed out and takes its time more than a Twilight Zone episode does. Oh, it takes its time. <laughs> I uh, think it takes too much time, personally. I didn't feel that there was enough story for 90 minutes. I mean, It's a- not so much the story. I think it's the reaction. And uh, I mean... After uh, Willa has disappeared, that scene where the preacher is standing outside the house where the kids are, leaning on the tree and singing, leaning on the everlasting love, and then going, children, children, yeah! And then the camera irises in behind him. Yeah. That's friggin' terrifying. Yeah. And that's not just him. That's the way it's staged. That's the use of the song. Yeah, but if he only hadn't continued on saying, Treacle tarts, oh, free today. He did not say that. (laughs) He did not say that, nor did they escape in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. I wish they had. Um, There's a point where Pearl is singing a song, and she's Mm -hmm. very strangely dubbed. By how to put this, someone much older than her. I don't (laughs) understand the point of that. And then there's this long montage of them floating down the river. And we yep. get to see a big old fake spider web and some really bad process shots of rabbits and stuff in the foreground. What did you think with all the animals? There was the rabbits, there was the turtle, there were a bunch of other, there was a fox. It felt like there was going to be a fable breaking out anytime soon, but it didn't actually I it happen. The, I thought it was the idea that they were lost in the wilderness, that they were surrounded by wildlife, by animals. Okay. That, that and and so what? Idea. That they were alone in the wilderness, which, by the way, is out of the Bible. Okay. Yeah. Fine. That's nice. <laughs> I, I, meh. Well, also, the geography okay. in this film is so weird. It's like, like you pointed out, where are they? Because they so talk about, oh, they must be from upriver near Cleveland and like, or Cincinnati. They're, and it's like, yeah, uh, they're in West Virginia, so that's kind of way upriver. Uh, does the Mississippi go to West Virginia? It's not the Mississippi. It's the Ohio River. Is it? Yeah. Because there's there, that there big old paddle boat. in this country. I know, but there's that big old paddle boat certainly <laughs> the suggesting. Ohio, the Ohio River in some places is very big. Okay. It just didn't feel anything like Ohio. 
Well, they they filmed it in California, so what do you well, want? There <laughs> in is fact, a... they filmed it in San Fernando. So well, they filmed a lot of it inside. Yeah, um, yeah. Which, so let's get to a little bit to the directing. There's an interesting choice here, and that is, I'm going to stage things very, very plainly and very, very stiltedly. Oh, but now German expressionism, out of nowhere. Yeah, sometimes there are some very unusual, I thought, imaginative shots. There were a lot of overhead-like shots from, I don't know, a plane or a helicopter or something that surprised me. Oh, like early on when the kids are playing um, hide-and-seek and and stuff? or even when you see uh, the preacher on his horse. Yeah, unless it's that one shot where he's in the background on the horse, except as it turns out, it was a little person on a horse. Yes, it was a little person (laughs) and a pony. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I, the expressionistic stuff just did not work for me because it seemed to come out of nowhere and it didn't really fit the feeling of the rest of the film. Like if the whole film had been experimental, I might have understood it. But I mean, this is corn pone noir. And then suddenly <laughs> we're in German in the 1920s. Like there are these weird, like the center of the screen is the set and then it's totally black on the outside edges, which just makes you feel like you're on a stage. It doesn't even feel like you're in that place anymore. There is a lot of this, and you know, James Agee, I think, was a playwright at one point that feels very much like it's a stage production as opposed to a movie. But then they do jump and they do some a bunch of cinematic stuff. I things like the shots of uh, Willa in the car underwater and her hair is floating the way the uh, marsh grass is floating. Yeah. And I really Which, hope that was a mannequin. I really, really hope it was a mannequin. Hey, we know she can hold her breath a long time. Oh, that's right, because she was an Olympic, not Olympic swimmer, but she was no, a she a, was a she was a, a competitive swimmer. Well, maybe she maybe it was her. I mean, it was yeah. that that was pretty creepy. Yeah, um, that's another. That's but an apparently, we shot. float downtown, down river, and eventually get to Neon Town because. Suddenly there's yes, all this the, the neon. Light, <laughs> the lights of the big city, which appears to be two streets. I get, well, you got to remember, they were running out of money, so they well, probably couldn't afford that. Whose fault was that? <laughs> yeah, well. <laughs> oh, I'll be on set soon. Um, yeah, and because, though, there's there's some sets in there, especially towards the end of the film, that feel Ed Woodish. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think it was that bad, but, yeah, there's some that are very budget-conscious. Yeah. And then later in the film, Powell shows up, and he's like, ah, oh, Ruby. And I'm like, how do you know her name? I assumed he'd been specking the place out. I guess it just seemed weird and out of nowhere. Well, at least he kept her from getting into trouble by yeah. having a really weird, creepy scene with her. And it, yeah, I have to admit, the whole thing with Ruby is really unusual. And I thought it was interesting, but I it, I don't think it needed to be there. The whole thing with where now suddenly she's in love with him. <laughs> I mean, I don't understand why, but also she's like, what, not even 16, probably? Yeah, she's a teenager. She's an early teen. And But I mean, it's again, like Miss Cooper says, Ruby is desperate for somebody to love her because, you know, her, her parents. Have, these are all kids probably of unwanted pregnancies right. or this well, is also, you know, during the Depression, yeah. a lot of it is parents who can't afford to keep their children. Yeah. So these are kids who ha- who probably feel very abandoned and are desperate to be loved. And while Miss Cooper is very nice, she's also kind of you know tough. Yeah, she's not she's not just you know unconditional, you know she's not all sweetness and sunshine, which admittedly is not what they need. No, she does beat the kids a couple times, uh, which not with a switch. Yeah. Well, no, she she actually smacks um, oh, John right. with Spanks a hairbrush or whatever it is, um, and it actually. <laughs> Pretty, pretty realistic, and it's like, yeah. that's bringing back bad memories. Please stop doing that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, hey, I would like to bring a new, I hope, regular character to our show. Did you catch Uh-oh. Owl on a String? 
<laughs> yes, I did. <laughs> they talk about that actually in the trivia that uh, they had the owl so they could. Th- there's a sequence which is very creepy of an owl pouncing on a rat or about to pounce on a rabbit. Mm. And in one shot, there's just the owl sort of hunching. And next shot, here's a very obvious black string which they use to yank the owl off the branch. Mm. I. Just... <laughs> Owl yeah, on the string, very... I hope we haven't seen the last of you. <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, where Rachel has that line, it's a hard world for little things. Yeah, uh, just so you know, that is not the sound a rabbit makes when it's being killed. I've heard that no. sound. It is really haunting, and you'll never forget it. It sounds like a, a child or a young woman screaming. I honestly think that's the reason behind a lot of people thinking there were ghosts and things in forests. It- yeah, people have said that, that it's, it's there are not just rabbits, but there are several animals that when they scream, they sound very human. Yeah, so as I was saying, I think a lot of the motivations are really weird till we get to the end. And Mrs. Cooper, or Miss Cooper, I don't know. Miss, Miss Cooper, I Ms. think. Miss Cooper, um, she's the only one who seems to get what's going on, and she acts appropriately, i.e. she gets her gun. Well, he says he'll be back, which we know he will, because that's otherwise we're not going to yeah. have any end of this movie. Yeah. So he comes back and he sits outside and sings the song on the stump and she sits there with her gun and then suddenly um, Ruby turns on the light which causes her not to be able to see and then he notices blah 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 and then we get a scene which I've been waiting for where she actually (laughs) shoots him and then she calls the police and says send the stadies right away. Six hours later, they show yeah. up. Well, like, they're in the middle of friggin' nowhere, so yeah, they take some... Well, we don't know. They're pretty close. I assumed it was close to dawn. But. Well, except it was very much not dawn when they showed up. It's well into the day. And the first uh, thing they said is, why did you wait so long to call us? And it's like, <laughs> um, I called you yeah. last night. Did you have to go hire some people? What's going on here? Probably. And apparently I, in this I, entire time, Robert Mitchum's just sat in the barn. Well, he's got a face full of shotgun pellets. He's not running anywhere. Why not? He's not going to feel any better sitting in the barn. He didn't try to escape. He just sat there. But okay. So now. I thought he was because he was been beaten. Now, interestingly, and I don't, this is where geography also gets kind of weird. They capture Powell. They put him on trial. They try to make the kid, John, testify against him, which. How is that going to hold up in a court of law? Never mind. Um, can you do that? Because I don't know that you can do that. I'm not sure what the laws were back then. On, techni- I've got to remember, this was technically it's the his father. Legal, um, yeah, but they, the testifying against your father, I don't think that was a law as opposed to testifying against your spouse. Uh, don't know. But uh, strangely, John won't testify against him. Yeah, and you notice he reacts when they're taken down Powell and they're handcuffing him. He reacts exactly the way he did when they took down his father. The thing is, is that scene actually, I think, I think it actually in a way should work because he realizes mm. that the reason his life has been made so terrible isn't because of what happened to his dad. It's because he's trying to hold on to, quote unquote, ill-gotten gains. And that quite honestly, he really is going to be better off when he gets rid of this $10,000, which is not his and which two people were murdered for to get. So I, I always figured this was sort of he's seeing Powell as a dark version of his father, sort of the anti-father, and he's rea- he can't help it. He reacts emotionally the same way. He's begging them not to hurt him. Or either that or he's basically realize, he's equating the two scenes and trying to beg his father to never have done this. It wasn't worth it. I don't know. Yeah, um, I maybe. think there's a good idea somewhere in there. It just visually comes off kind of weird. Um, and then the townspeople from... I don't know, North Bum, I'm going to have to bleep this, North Bum, 
have shown up and it's Frankenstein time and they've got pitchforks yeah. and torches. Oh, he's brought, you know, he's brought back to their town, I'm pretty sure, because they talk about getting on the bus because that's where, you know, he's being tried in the region that, where the murder was committed. I guess that's we, apparently the only one they found. Well, I guess. And it's like we don't see them go anywhere. So it feels and all the kids yeah. and Miss Cooper come, I guess, whatever. But now they're yeah. all they're, they're all chanting. And of course, you know, icy spoon. <laughs> <laughs> I want to yeah, see a movie with a Icy mob. Spoon and Owl on a String. Um, <laughs> it's sitting there leading the chant against, and they're all going, Bluebeard, Bluebeard. Yep. What the hell was that? Oh, Bluebeard, you know what I mean? He's a uh, figure out of uh, folktales. He was a guy who was a serial wife murderer. He oh. would marry a woman, a kill pirate. her, and then put her put her body in uh, the basement in a cold room. Oh, no, I didn't know that. I thought it was a oh, pirate yeah. reference, and I'm no, like, no, there's no pirates in this movie. No, it's a reference to someone who murders murders multiple women, oh. and particularly marries them and murders them usually for their money. Oh, well, there you go. And yeah, suddenly these people who were like saying, oh, you've got to marry him, he's wonderful, we love you preachers, like, yeah, kill him, bah! Oh, and uh, by the way, burn the witch. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, I and I do. Lo- I like the bit where ba- or Bart the Hangman just tips his hat, and says, I'll, "It'll be a pleasure." Yeah, that's what I'm looking forward to. Yep. And then there's this really weird symbolism at the end of the movie. Did you catch this? I don't know how you couldn't have. But the apple. Yeah. So they're yeah. trying. It's Christmas, I guess, and everyone is giving a gift to Miss Cooper, and John realizes he doesn't have anything because he literally doesn't have anything. Yeah, he has nothing at all. So he goes into the living room where there's a plate of apples, like you do, and he wraps an apple up in a doily and hands it to her. Well, there's been some real big Bible thumping all through this movie, so you've got a character who is now handing an apple to another character. Where have I heard this before? Hmm. Mm, I don't know. I no, I think that's... You're reading too much into that, that part. I think it was... It's a callback to a few scenes before when they've just got there, and she's telling them the story of Moses and... And the apple? She re- She realizes that John's upset about something, about the Bible. And she says, John, bring me an apple and bring one for yourself. Oh, I get it. I get it. Mm -hmm. The problem is the symbology of the apple and the Bible is like it should have been a pear. If it had been any other fruit, it would have not brought that up. The the apple does have a lot of, you know, Edenic qualities about it. (laughs) I'm Satan. Enjoy the film. (laughs) Yeah, it just was like, why would you do that? I don't know. It just made no sense to me. But, oh, I'm looking at the clock on the wall, and it's saying it's just about time to get to that thing we do so well that we do. Oh, God, Mike, are the clocks talking to you again? Tell them Max is a bad man. (laughs) (laughs) The finish. So, Max. Yes. This week, he's just like, nope, I'm just waiting. I'm not yep, even going to try. I'm, a, I'm not even going to try. <laughs> 200 and however many episodes have never happens. I'm not. I'm done. I give up. So, Max, when did you see this first? You said you'd seen it before. Oh, boy. I saw it on videotape. Uh, God, it must have been 30 years ago. Okay. Yeah, it's never been a long it. time. So I had heard of it mostly because... Uh, there was a time when both my sister and I were really interested in serial killers. Oh, and night, and I remember. Actually, no, that's right. I remembered why. It was because in the Neil Gaiman Sandman. Remember, they have the serial convention. Oh yeah. They they reference a bunch of movies. I think they're on the shelves. There's like M. There's like something else. And one of them was Night of the Hunter, which I didn't know, so I wanted to watch it. Okay. 
And that's why you watched it then. Have you seen it, it since? Nope. I don't think I have. Okay. So what did you think? Yeah. Um, I think it's remarkable for its time. I think Robert Mitchum's incredible. He's incredibly creepy, incredibly scary. I like the way it looks. Overall, as a movie, it has a lot of problems. So I do think a lot of the other performances are pretty wooden, confusing. There are pieces. I don't mind when they le- let the audience figure things out or they leave some stuff to your imagination. I think they did that a little too much. I think this movie could have benefited from being another 15 minutes or so mm-hmm. of character development, at least for uh, Shelley Winter's character. Yes. What, th- uh, what other problems did you see with it? Uh, the pacing is kind of uneven. Mm. There are parts that move really fast, and there are parts that get a little bit slow. But I have to say, the movie's 96 minutes, I think. I didn't feel it was too long. I thought it moved along all right all overall. Now, this is the first time you've seen this, right? That is correct. And you, I am going to go out on a limb and guess, were not impressed. I think it's terrible. Oh, Everything feels stilted and stiff. The, the staging is so... I don't know. It's, I just feels, it doesn't, I want to say it doesn't feel like a play because plays can be staged really well and interestingly. This is not interesting. They're straight on in some cases. Sometimes there's a suddenly, like you said, there's this weird upward angle for no particular reason. And then we get German expressionism, like these very, very harsh shadows. Um, I then the, the music is heavy handed. I, I had to look. It's like, is this Albert Glasser? Because I feel pummeled. <laughs> it wasn't. But the guy who wrote this wrote yeah. the theme to Dragnet, and suddenly oh. everything made sense. Okay, yeah, that kind of fits. Yeah. Um, I think most of the performances are borderline terrible from people that we know can do better. Which is again, while I'm not blaming them, I'm going to blame Lawton. Uh, I think the direction is t- is really just not good. It is it mm. is very odd. It feels without nuance. It feels uneven. I think it felt too long. I don't think there's enough story for 90 minutes. Now, like you said, I would like to know more about certain characters, especially Willa, because I don't know what she's motivated to do anything. I don't even know why she makes dinner. Like, I literally can't figure out what's going on with her. The kids, half the time, they should be running and screaming, and they're just standing there. I don't... Yeah. I. I <laughs> I can totally see why Pearl would have been, the actress who played Pearl would have been frightened of Robert Mitchum. See, Robert Mitchum. <laughs> no, no, she, was, she, was, she was afraid of Charles Lawton. She should have been afraid of Robert <laughs> Mitchum. I mean, I can see her wanting a daddy. I get it. And apparently Peter Graves was a great dad. Uh, I'm Peter Graves and I'm a great father on a and <laughs> I just, I'm a, this has a 97% Metacritic score, which amazes me because it just feels... Uh, off all over the place one question we forgot to ask is is this noir yeah i think it is you know evil triumphing initially a lot of moral gray space the people there aren't a lot of good people in this movie which is weird because of course they're presented as being good people initially yeah i mean the people in the town i always that to me is one of the most effective things I thought was really powerful is you have, you know, oh, yes, we're good old plain folks. Kill him! Kill him! Burn! <laughs> burn the witch! <laughs> burn! Yeah. Did you do the nose? Well, we no. did the nose. Which is those. And the and hat. The hat. <laughs> she has got a watch. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I think it is noir. It has the, it, it's just, as I said, it's cornpone noir. It's noir, mm. but in the fields of Ohio, Virginia. <laughs> West Ohio, Virginia, <laughs> California, I don't know. I, it's 
California IAEIEIO, yeah. Pretty much. Well, I, I, well, I think we got to disagree on this. I think this film is remarkable. I can see its influences on a lot of others. I absolutely see that it has flaws, but it honestly, does. I would watch this again just to see Robert Mitchum. I'd rather watch Robert Mitchum than something else. Was he in the original Cape Fear? Yes, he was. That seems to me like probably a better choice if you want to yeah. watch Robert Mitchum. I saw the updated version, and that was creepy. But it's like was, with Robert Mitchum. Ugh. I saw the one with Robert Mitchum, and he's him and Gregory Peck. The way they play off each other is really something, and he is friggin' terrifying. Yeah, like I, he's somebody I would not want to meet in real life. Like you're, yeah. like just like Johnny Wiseau. But mm-hmm. we come to the end of this, and but well, we have mm-hmm. to do the poll question too. You got to remind us yes. what the poll question is. Speaking yes, I will. There's. Speaking of uh, creepy, frightening characters, who who or what is the scariest movie character you've ever encountered? And you can answer this question by emailing us at us at maxmikemovies.com. Or you can go to our website, maxmikemovies.line. <laughs> Kristen Honey, <laughs> we're filming. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Dot, actually, I shouldn't, do, I shouldn't joke like that. There may be a dot line extension now. Oh, I don't know. Wow. Dot com. <laughs> maxmikemovies.com. And you can leave a comment. You can also find us this on on the Puss Book. Ah, uh, Facebook. <laughs> Never. Uh, Facebook. Yeah, under Max Mike Movies, we put the uh, poll question up there. You can answer it there. And you can find us on the podcast app that the voices tell you to use. <laughs> he tell, gives me a hard time about the clocks. <laughs> <laughs> Listen to the podcast apps. <laughs> There's... What songs they sing. But that is the end of Walk the Dark Street. And what a dark street and what a lot of walking we've done. Mm -mm. My dogs are um, dog tired. Tired? (laughs) Thank you. We'll let you know. (laughs) And I think this was a really interesting uh, thing to explore. I got to talk about and see aspects of noir I'd never seen, never talked about. I agree. We got some help from you folks, which, um, by the way, although you didn't realize it, (laughs) <laughs> you, you help us for the next right series. Trap. <laughs> yes, we're doing the most evil, vicious, terrifying series you can imagine, which is um, <clears throat> funny movies. We're doing series What's So Funny, and we're going to show you what's so funny. Yeah, Movies what make you go ha, 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 laugh, pee, <laughs> all that. <laughs> yes, a movie is not funny unless it makes you pee. Okay. Get to the part where you pee. Yeah, uh, but and we so- are going to wait an extra week. There's a little yes. bit of a delay, so there will be another yes. episode in two weeks. Sorry about that. Mike is Mike has to go in for his nose hemorrhoid surgery. I what? I best I guess I'd best stop <laughs> sitting on my I face and on telling you inter- that I love me. <laughs> yep, I, I found it on the internet. Don't dispute me. Uh, huh? Yeah. No, no. So in two weeks we're going to start. What's so funny? Mm-hmm. And what are we starting with? Well. We are going to start with, and as I said, um, y'all are going to be a part of this. And why that, I mean that we're going to trade off. So I'm going to pick a film from my list. Max is going to pick a film from your his list. And then the, whoever's next, in this case me, will pick a film from the question you just answered. So you are going to be a part of our little show. And we're... <laughs> yeah, don't you feel foolish now? We're not going to credit you, but you're going to be part of... No, I'm just kidding. Of course we are. No. <laughs> but uh, we're going to start, I think, with a film I've actually never seen. I'm ah. going to start with a film called Pop Star, Never Stop, Never Stopping, which oh, was... Oh, that's that Andy Samberg movie, right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> 
I have not seen this either. This will be an interesting start. Yeah, it's a more recent film. It was on a number of lists, and I thought, you know, let's let's do some films that other people think are funny. Oh, why the heck yeah. not? So next show in two weeks, join us for Pop Thing, Stopping with the Stopness. In the making with the funny ha-ha laughingness. And hopefully, hopefully we'll do better than that. This has been a co-production of The Voice of Max and The Movie Wrench. Thank you.